The talk is called The Kindness of Renunciation That Leads to Peace. There were two significant meetings that the Buddha-to-be had uh, that were incredibly transformational on his spiritual journey. And the first was seeing a renunciate, and the second was the kindness shown to him by a woman when he was almost dead from hunger. So the first meeting, before the Buddha was the Buddha, he was a young prince, and uh, he lived in three different palaces in India because his father decided that he didn't want him to ever experience any um, pain or discomfort. So he lived a life of great pleasure, but at a certain point, you know, because of uh, a deep, I think, yearning to expand beyond this kind of prison that his father created for him, he announced that he was going to go outside the palace walls. Before he could do it, his father uh, made sure that the whole village was cleaned up of anybody old, anybody sick, or anybody dead, uh, so that nothing could disturb him. But when he did go out and his driver um, drove him along, a deva, or celestial being, is said to have conjured up first an image of someone old, and then someone diseased, and then someone dead. And each time that happened, it happened three times in a row, the first time he went out and the deva conjured up somebody old, uh, the Buddha-to-be was really disturbed. Uh, and there was a realization that this too would happen to him and everyone he knew, in fact, all beings that took birth. Uh, and he would get so disturbed by this, he would go back to the palace. But then he'd go out again, he'd saw someone diseased, <clears throat> had the same realization, went back. Third, saw someone dead, had the same realization, went back. The fourth time he went out, a deva conjured up a renunciate. The description in the text is quite beautiful. It says that he saw someone more peaceful than peace itself. And this had such a, a profound impact on him that he started his spiritual journey. He became a renunciate. He left home. When we think about renunciation, I think especially uh, culturally, it's not often seen as a form of kindness toward ourselves and others. Uh, there's not so much understanding about it. It's often seen as a kind of deprivation or suffering. In some ways, you can see renunciation as letting go of our preferences. If you look more closely at it, it's not acting on our preferences. Why? Why would we do that? Certainly, renunciation isn't a picnic. Uh, and when we let go of control of acting on our preferences, we see that we face our insecurity. You know, we let go of a lot of the props that would cover up our insecurity. So the kindness that renunciation brings is that it helps us uncover greed, hatred, and delusion. It helps us to face our suffering. So the first um, significant meeting that the Buddha-to-be had was with the four heavenly messengers, someone old, someone diseased, someone dead. But particularly, I'm emphasizing tonight, the renunciate, someone who found peace that new peace was possible. Another way you can contemplate a renunciate uh, is someone who listens to 
their deep aspiration. There's a kind of sweetness of aspiration to be free that we all have. And uh, this renunciate is someone who deeply listens to that aspiration. So the Buddha-to-be went out on his spiritual journey and did many years of very harsh uh, ascetic practices. This was before the middle way. (laughs) And so there was, you know, the the path of renunciate in those days was one of intense self-mortification, extreme isolation. He became so emaciated uh, that it, when he was wandering in the forest and fasting, uh, he almost died. And he fainted in a ditch. And there was a young woman named Sujata who was carrying a bowl of rice gruel for her mother to make an offering to the forest gods and goddesses for her mother. So as she was walking to do that, she came upon <coughs> the Buddha-to-be, almost dead, bones showing. And she was so touched by his suffering that she offered him the rice gruel. And she did this several days in a row until he was strong enough uh, to practice again. This... Um, in my sense of the Buddha's life, was the most significant meeting. And if you think about that his mother died when he was born, he'd be very susceptible to kindness. And after years of isolation and deprivation, being shown that kind of kindness you know, is how he found the happiness and peace of the middle path. And this is something that isn't emphasized that much, but really we have to think about this is what gave the Buddha to be the strength and the determination to decide to sit under the Bodhi tree when he was strong enough. He made that determination not to move until he was fully liberated. When I go to Burma now um, every year and get a sense of how um, the Burmese people really experience the Buddha as if he just walked by yesterday, that when they offer food, they are reenacting Sujata's offering of the food to the Buddha. It's like when you receive food in Burma to practice, that's how it's being seen. It's like they're offering you Sujata's rice gruel as a kindness, you know, out of compassion, so that you'll have the strength to do this deep inner work to liberate oneself. Every day, that's reenacted. And that's what the staff are doing for us here. But we often get out of touch with it. That's it's out of the generosity and the kindness of people that we have this possibility of liberation. So the middle path, you know, how did he come across that? Well, it's not self-indulgence, where he came from before he went on to be a renunciate, and it's not self-mortification. It's not striving too hard, and it's not giving up. It's really right effort. The practice of renunciation uh, is something we do throughout the practice, because if we think of generosity as a letting go, and then a renunciation as a letting go. The precepts, following the precepts here, is a letting go of control, not acting on our preferences. And then as we do the mindfulness practice, we're letting go 
of busyness. We're letting go of harmful action and speech. And then on a deeper level, we're letting go of getting lost in the past and the future. Present time awareness is renouncing getting lost in the past and the future. The middle path is the path of purification. And it's through this practice of renunciation that we uncover how we suffer. Through letting go of control of the preferences, we face the controlling mind, the reacting mind. And we learn and we see for ourselves that suffering meaning the suffering of the reactive mind isn't necessary. It's extra. So we see that, yes, we are born in the human world. And if we pay attention, we'll see that life is a stream of change. And it's a stream of change of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings associated with each moment of consciousness that we have very little control over. So when we say, may we be happy and peaceful of heart, or when we say, may we be free from suffering, it doesn't mean, may we never experience pain. Although, that's what I had hoped when I first started (laughs) meditating. (laughs) I thought that's what it was about. But slowly I started to understand that this wasn't about controlling how life is, and that life is a stream of uncontrollable, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So when we start to understand this, we'll start to see that may we be free from suffering is being free from getting lost in attachment, getting lost in aversion, getting lost in in delusion. How do we face the controlling mind on a retreat? Well, one aspect of practicing renunciation is practicing some continuity with the practice. Continuity is renunciation. Uh, So say between breakfast and lunch, we decide to try to do that sit-walk, sit-walk, without taking a lot of breaks. That's um, enabling the fire to be turned up a little. So the more we have continuity in the practice, the fire will go up, meaning that we'll start to see, you know, the wanting mind a little more, or the aversive mind a little more. One of the places that I saw this the most clearly early in my practice was in this hall. And I had never heard about taking the eight precepts before. So it wasn't even an idea in my mind that people could not um, eat tea or drink tea at that uh, 5 o'clock or 5.15 time. But I was sitting here, and there was a sitting right before tea, and the tea bell rang, and I'd never experienced such deep contentment before. And I just was really in this beautiful space of equanimity, totally happy, peaceful, and I didn't want to leave. And usually, you know, in my practice up till that point when the bell rang, I ran out of the hall, you know, (laughs) yippee. And, you know, when I turn around and see people sitting still, I'd think, you know, what is wrong with them? You know, (laughs) how could they possibly want to keep sitting? You know, it was unthinkable to me. So I finally figured out, you know, in this moment, oh, (laughs) This is contentment. This is great. Um, So people left the hall. Five minutes went by. Ten minutes went by. And I really thought this was going to last forever, because I didn't ever experience it before. And I started thinking, oh, I wonder what they're having for tea. (laughs) (laughs) And I bit, you know, it's just like, oh, you know, what if it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I started feeling that missing. What was I missing? 
And the wanting mind just started creeping in, and I fell for it. I didn't just note wanting, I started really believing it. At the same time, there were people that lived at the uh, house across the street in those days. IMS didn't own it. And they had a dog that was chained up all the time. Very unhappy dog. And the dog started barking and barking and barking. And then my mind started barking and barking (laughs) and barking. And it was just me and the dog barking and barking and barking. Uh, And it was just, I wanted that contentment back so badly. I was so attached to the contentment. I wanted to know what people were eating for tea. And the contentment went from such a pleasant state to such dukkha so quickly. Uh, But the dog barking taught me a lot. It's just like listening to that barking. I realized I could listen to the wanting and start to become mindful of it. That was the first time I ever realized you could pay attention to your mind in that way. And in some ways, it was more liberating than the contentment. It was like, wow, (laughs) I saw the possibility for freedom and that I didn't have to buy into that wanting. There was a deeper kind of happiness, which is peace, which is what the Buddha taught. It's like it's a peace and happiness that's not dependent on the experience that's happening. You can be peaceful even if wanting's happening, if you're mindful of it, if there's that acceptance, non-identification. And it will come and go like a barking dog. It might bark for a long time. <laughs> it might seem permanent sometimes, but it isn't. It will pass. So learning that we don't have to be oppressed by the reactive mind, the controlling mind, is a huge place of insight in this practice. It's like we get this glimmer of possibility, of freedom. That's the kindness of renunciation. It's called the suffering that ends suffering versus the suffering that leads to more suffering. When we understand that we don't have to identify and act on the wanting mind or the aversive mind, even understanding this is strengthening. You know, even understanding it is liberating. So the more we're identified with our own thoughts or others' thoughts, the weaker we get. The, <laughs> the less identified, the stronger we get the more we can notice a stream of mental states like fear or hunger or loneliness or loving-kindness or mindfulness and then knee pain and then a sound to notice that stream of mind and body come and go and we're not identified with it, meaning we're not taking it personally, uh, that's renunciation. And we get strengthened by that. As the days go on on the retreat, and there are days of silence, of renunciation, of continuity, of sitting, walking, receiving meals, we'll start to see how we'll be drawn toward more stimulation. So the bulletin board becomes more and more entertaining. Yeah? You know, so if you've been here for the longer haul, you'll see that it's like the television of the meditation center. <laughs> and any new note is like a commercial. <laughs> uh, I used to take it as a kind of practice uh, to try to only stop by there, you know, after breakfast. And even when I would go past there on my way in and out of here, that I wouldn't stop. And it was really hard sometimes. You know, I'd be walking by and I'd see a group of people there, you know, and I just, and my eyes would look up, you know, and then I'd be seeing wanting. uh, And to not act on it every time, that's renunciation. But you see that that isn't always a picnic, is it? You get to see the wanting more if one restrains oneself. 
and then we learn to work with it. The place that I saw this uh, the most clearly, the pain of it, was at a retreat I did in Wales. It was my first long retreat I ever did. And we did a retreat at a Polish Boy Scout house, (laughs) which meant that all the signs were in Polish. You know, so if there, if there was an exit sign, like the exit sign there, it was in Polish, or like little signs in the kitchen or dining room, everything was in Polish. And as the retreat went on, you know, that desperation for input, you know, <laughs> the toilet paper wrapping was in Polish. <laughs> and I'd be in the bathroom, you know, trying to read Polish <laughs> toilet paper, you know, wrappings, and it was just so... Humiliating. <laughs> day after day, I'd catch myself looking at this, hoping that somehow I could learn Polish, you know. <laughs> That's craving. <laughs> the Buddha taught <laughs> craving was the basic cause for physical and mental suffering. He said that when loba or craving arises, there's no contentment possible. Craving doesn't have the nature of contentment. And us humans can become like slaves to craving. It's very important to learn that the wanting mind isn't you. It's wanting that wants, not you. And in terms of aversion, which is the not wanting mind, you know, it's hatred that hates. It's not you. And delusion, not seeing clearly, not noticing. It's not you. It's the not seeing clearly that doesn't see see clearly. So if we start to grasp... uh, the profundity of change that really is happening moment by moment. Sounds, body sensations, thoughts, you know, just the mindfulness practice is meant to help us to see how quickly life is changing and how delicate it is to really see it clearly. We'll see that getting lost in wanting, getting lost in not wanting, um, isn't necessary, you know the more you see the possibility for freedom, often the more commitment to the practice we have. Usually once a year I teach a a very beginner's class in Honolulu um, for mindfulness. And I'm challenged by the difficulty in teaching people mindfulness of thought you know, when there's very little experience with meditation. And this year, it became so clear to me that mindfulness of thought is so much renouncing thought. It's a form of renunciation. It's renouncing the storyline over and over again. It's renouncing getting lost in the content, letting go of the story. So initially, in teaching mindfulness of thinking, because thoughts are traveling so quickly, you know, we don't say, pay attention to the beginning of a thought, the middle of a thought, the end of a thought, like you would the breath, right? I mean, just trying to do that with a breath is a major achievement. So we can't do that with thought, because it's happening so much quicker initially. Um, So how do we teach that? Well, a lot of the emphasis is on really (laughs) having physical sensations be the foreground. And I try to say, let the thinking be like an AM radio on in the background. You know, I'm emphasizing AM. (laughs) That's not usually our favorite station, our favorite soothing station on. It's usually a station that we might prefer to be you know, changing um, over and over. So having that sense that your mind is like an AM radio on in the background, 
that you just can't change. But having the emphasis on the physical sensations initially be in the foreground, it helps us to learn to let that just be in the background and to be less and less bothered by it. You know when you get a song in your head on a retreat, and I won't share mine because I don't think it's fair (laughs) to add another one into your repertoire. It's bad enough to have the ones you have. but it's tempting. (laughs) The one thing that I can say is that the songs that do go through my mind are an indicator of my mind states. You know, so the certain songs that go through are like, oh, and then the commercials, oh, you know. And it's, um, initially in practice, I kept thinking that I could get rid of it. And they bothered me so much. And now I see them as indicators of my mind states. Oh, hmm, boredom. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, anger. Oh, frustration. So we don't often see renouncing the storyline of a thought as a kindness toward ourselves. Do you treat it as a, as a deprivation Or do you treat it as a kind of appreciation that you can choose that kind of kindness? In terms of continuity, it can be helpful, depending on where you are in your practice, to stretch a bit on a retreat. Uh, But that'll be very different for each person in this room. So sometimes when things are difficult or when we're overwhelmed by unpleasant mind states, sometimes backing off, getting a cup of tea, getting some space, going for a walk can be helpful. But learning how to take chunks of time for continuity, especially times when your energy is high, is really important. You know, it's not giving in and giving in to every preference. It's learning how to have that strength to renounce and face the wanting mind, to face the aversive mind. And this is strengthening, not weakening. When someone on a retreat is being mindful, you know how contagious it is. If it's really a genuine mindfulness, it's kind of like an ambrosia, and it's inspiring. Sometimes we might get jealous (laughs) that they're having a good time and we're having a bad time. Uh, But that's usually really not tuning in, because I know when I started having more continuity in my practice, I actually experienced more wanting and not wanting. It got harder. So I would think the people who were looking so good, you know, in my mind, um, I thought they were having a picnic. But actually, as I started to have more continuity, I realized they were having the same time I had, but just more intense. When someone isn't being mindful, we notice that too. We notice the rushing, we notice the slamming door. Um, We can see how We each affect the stars. The stars affect us. It's like our lives are so deeply intertwined. And we start experiencing that on a retreat. We get that whiff of mindfulness, or that whiff of aversion, or that whiff of delusion. (laughs) Understanding the transformational experiences that the Buddha-to-be had of a renunciate, the power of someone peaceful, how it transformed his life. He found his own inspiration for practice in that, his own spiritual urgency. And then someone kind, how inspirational that was for him. If we stretch a bit, sometimes we get to face fear, we'll notice our edge, What if I don't eat that extra helping of food? You know, what if I slow down here? You know, what if I really pay attention to reaching for the door? You know, there's often a fear 
of what will happen if we renounce and stretch a bit. There was a point in my practice where I was working with Sayada Upandita, a teacher from Burma, uh, and I had worked with him for some years off and on, and I often felt that I was at the peak of stretching with him as my teacher. And there was a time when I came into an interview with him where I almost felt over the edge <laughs> from stretching. Uh, and in that uh, interview system, you take a few notes on your you know, sittings and you, you know, read them to him. So I kind of bowed and then I lifted up my piece of paper and he asked to look at my notes. So I handed him my piece of paper and he said, you didn't make the A mindfully, you know, of my writing. And he pointed out each letter and showed me where I hadn't been mindful writing the letter. (laughs) (laughs) I was just ready to, I just scream, you know, just scream. And I almost just scream, leave me alone and slam the door and left, but I managed to hold it together before I stomped out. Um, But I had a tantrum. I mean, I walked up and down that dirt driveway out there for about three hours, just unpleasant, 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 unpleasant. Uh, And it was so hard for me uh, to hear, you know, you could stretch there when I felt like I was stretching. But actually, when I surrendered to it, he was right. It actually helped my practice, you know, to really slow down there. So that might mean different things to you, but over the course of my practice life, what I found is that adding something in once in a while, not for the whole day, but one little thing helps. So literally, if you tried to be mindful now, from now to when you went to bed, and you said, I have to be mindful, for the rest of the night, it would be too heavy. You'd cave in. You're adding all these hours of time onto something that's meant to be timeless. So if you say, you know, maybe I can be mindful the next moment, that's possible. If you try to be mindful for one step, you know how hard it is to be mindful of one breath or one step? But if you ask yourself to do that all day, It'll be too heavy, but if you ask yourself to do it now, it's very light. And I found that if I added things like, there was a time where, um, for walking meditation, I used to wear my shoes. I still do, you know, because of a back thing. Um, (laughs) So I had a a retreat, a three-month retreat, where I said to myself, I'm going to be mindful of tying my shoes and treat it like an opportunity rather than something, an intrusion on my practice to to have to wear shoes every walking. It was amazing. You know, I made it a practice. It wasn't like I hated myself every time I couldn't tie my shoes mindfully. But I thought it would be easier than it was. You know, and I I just have that intention to be mindful, and then, boop, the little loop would be made. You know, and I go, (laughs) let's try to be with the next loop. You know, (laughs) and it it started to be fascinating to me rather than something to judge. Like, wow, how quickly my hands move, you know. And then after some years of really working with one thing, I shifted to, let's try to be mindful of brushing hair. And I have that intention, you know, before I'd go to bed, you know, with brushing my teeth, and it would be like, <laughs> you know, and then it's done. And it's like, okay, start again next night, you know, or next morning. And it can become interesting, like, where was I? You know, what happened? It happens so quickly. Life moves very quickly. You know, so you try to pick chunks of time in the, in the day. You try to pick things, little things to be mindful of. And if you do that, it'll, you can... It's like it grows. You can build on it. If you're too hard on yourself, it gets too heavy. 
and you lose the energy for it rather than the kind of awe of the process itself. I had a student, student, I think it was this past three-month retreat, that was doing walking meditation out by Pleasant Street um, along the stone wall. And there were some neighbors who were walking the loop, and they came by uh, where this person was walking, and she heard one of the neighbors say to the other neighbor, do you know? She was looking at everyone doing walking meditation. She said, do you know that they do that all day? (laughs) 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 Little did she know that they were doing it for three months, you know. (laughs) And then she said she thought, boy, They're doing what they do all day, you know, and we're all doing what we do all day, day after day. But do we show up for it? How many times do we brush our teeth? How many times do we breathe, think, hear, eat? How much of the time are we really here? This is a poem that someone um, gave me to read recently called The Job by Kay Ryan. Imagine that the job were so delicate that you could seldom, almost never, remember it. Impossible work, really. Like placing pebbles exactly where they were already the steadiness it takes, and to what end, it's so easy to forget again. So delicate, so difficult to remember. The first part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering. Now, and you know, Really, there are just two choices for us as human beings. We're either lost or we're remembering to be here. And that's really, I think, encouraging, (laughs) you know, that there's only two possibilities. (laughs) That makes it kind of simple. It's amazing the difference in worlds. When we understand present time awareness, we know what we're doing. And when we're getting lost, we forget why we're doing it. And there are two worlds that almost seem unbridgeable. You know when you're lost in a fantasy and it's so compelling, like whether it's a romance or a career, you know, or saving the world, or whatever it is. It's like it can be so compelling. And to choose to be in the present moment can seem so distasteful, you know, in comparison to that completely imaginary world. It's so comforting, that world. And then when you're mindful, and you're really getting it, and you're in the present moment, how distasteful getting lost in that fantasy can be. That's how different those worlds are. It's extraordinary, really. How do we relate to it when we notice we're lost in thinking? Now, do we treat it as something that we can really control? You know, if you could control (laughs) not getting lost in a thought, would you, as much as you do? Now try it. I'm not going to get lost in this thought. I'm really going to be with the breath. (laughs) You're inhaling. You know, did you control that? But then you come back. You, You wake up. That's mindfulness. You remember to be here. 
And then you can even choose another moment to be here and another moment, and you do the best you can, and at some point you'll get lost. So the practice is one of really emphasizing starting again. It's not emphasizing focusing on how much you've been lost. If you focus on how much you get lost, it's a depressing day. You know, there's, there's no other way that you could judge it. You know, the, the human mind thinks. So if you think that the ear hears, the nose smells, the eye sees, the mind thinks. So what are we going to do about it? Now freedom is learning how to be mindful of it all. Now if we were going to try to be free from getting rid of things, then getting a lobotomy would be an easier <laughs> way, yeah? You know, so the, the, task, <laughs> the task is one of starting to get that, yes, human beings are judging machines. We're planning machines. You know, part of it is that's what we do. So one reason we encourage you to renounce looking at each other so much it's not because we're trying to punish you or make you all look like zombies. You know, that's not the idea. The idea is to have you get quiet enough so that if you do look up, you'll notice the judgment. And then you'll see how easily it is to go off and off in a big way. And as Re Rebecca was saying last night, um, it's so easy to get married, divorced, and actually bury somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> before you even take three steps. You know, that's how easily it is. Just from one, one, you might see somebody's just the tip of their sandals, you know. And, and it can be so pleasurable, you know. <laughs> I was walking through the upper walking room the other day, you know, and I've walked through that room a lot. Um, so nothing usually stands out too much. And I was walking through and I saw this jacket it was just out <laughs> the corner of my eye. It's just amazing. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it was so pleasant. Uh, and I was, as I was walking out by the bulletin board, I was thinking, hmm, L.L. Bean? <laughs> 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 you know, wonder if I can find a catalog. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you're on retreat, it's like, I wonder if anyone will really notice when the box comes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's humiliating, you know. <laughs> They'll see that you lost it. <laughs> and, and if you trace it back, it was all from seeing and not being mindful. You know, and this is what we get to discover by restraining ourselves from not finding the catalog. <laughs> and it's the same with something unpleasant. I mean, talk about praise and blame. You know, we live in such a world of judgment. Uh, and uh, when I first was practicing, and I'd go in the dining room when, when people were eating, it was so intense for me, I couldn't eat in there like the first few years of my practice, it was just the amount of judgment I would sense and perceive and in myself and others that I'd have to go outside and eat. And finally, I started realizing that judging was okay. And I would go in the dining room and it would be like, oh, judging. You know, well, there's a lot of judging going on. Uh, and in becoming interested in it, rather than upset by it. So that's the shift from not liking how it is to be human to being mindful of being human. And ultimately, one renounces the storyline, the content, so it becomes generic. It's just planning. We notice it, and then we take another step, and another step. Oh, judging, it's just judging. And it becomes more and more background more and more background. The less it bothers you, the less it'll push itself into your consciousness and become a problem. You know, and this is such freedom. 
you know, not to become a victim over and over of one's thought process. There's a friend of uh, mine, a family that lives about three or four miles from here. Uh, and recently the family was having uh, some trouble, so I was taking one of the daughters to soccer games this past fall, about 45 minutes from here. And when I was in high school, actually junior high and high school, I played sports. Um, and my coach in high school was quite, I would call, mean. <laughs> uh, and in field hockey games, you know, even if we were playing our best and really hard, if we weren't winning at halftime, she wouldn't let us have oranges. You know, it was like the only thing that mattered was winning. And it was really, you know, blood and winning, whether, whatever sport it was. Uh, so I went to the soccer game with her, and the coach was just the opposite of the coach I had had. He was so um, balanced. It was like he had a way of emphasizing that the most important thing was teamwork, you know, playing well together. Uh, and that winning was great, but that doing the best you could was, you know, really what mattered. And if somebody on the other team did something well, <laughs> he would praise them. I mean, I was, it was like I was on another planet watching this guy. You know, and he, you know, if somebody did something out on the, out on the field, um, and if it was a good play but didn't work, he'd yell, nice try, nice try. And in a whole game, you know, mostly what I would hear him say was, nice try. Um, and I think in the meditation practice, we really need to learn that. You know, nice try. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the loop was made before I could be mindful of it. Nice try. <laughs> you went through the door again and missed the whole trip through the door. Oop, nice try. <laughs> um, you notice you were lost in thinking for five minutes. Start again. Nice try. Now that's very different than cruelty. You know, that's very different than a heavy hand. And it's energizing. You know, cruelty is demoralizing. It, it takes energy. It sucks energy. Um, if you know that the practice is one of starting again, and starting again, and starting again. The more you practice, the more you're going to know it's about starting again. It doesn't matter how many times you get lost in a thought. What matters is that you notice it, and you come back. And you notice it, and you come back. You notice it, and come back. And how you relate to coming back to the present moment is what matters. Nice try. When I'm in um, Burma now, uh, I have a kuti, or a little cottage, that overlooks the river, the Irrawaddy River. And sunrise there is quite um, spectacular. Uh, and I'm usually up very early, especially for me, there. Um, so pretty much notice the darkness from 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning um, until the sunrise, which is about 5 past 7 at that time of year. And about an hour before sunrise, the boats start coming down from Mandalay down river. And it's not um, a crowded scene. It's like these very old, unusual boats start to come down river. Um, before sunrise. 
And at sunrise, the river is so still, it doesn't look like it's moving. So that when a boat goes by, the wake, the wake that the boat leaves is so clear and so perfect. Um, it's a teaching for me whenever I'm there to see that wake that the boat leaves. Um, and we leave a wake. Whenever we're mindful, we leave a wake of peace. You know, every step you take with present time awareness, where you're not lost in the past or future, you're not lost in aversion and attachment, it might be fairly neutral. It doesn't have to be a huge, big deal. But you take that step, and you're not lost. You leave a wake of peace. You know, if there's an experience of loving kindness, you leave a wake of loving kindness. You know, when you're really impatient, you leave a wake of impatience. So when we see the significance of the Buddha to be meeting one who is more peaceful than peace itself, and knowing how transformational it is uh, to be free from suffering, Hopefully it really motivates us to face the suffering that ends suffering and to learn a non-violent mind that brings the non-violence to this world. So let's sit for a minute. May we understand the kindness of renunciation that leads to peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.